Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Today we're talking carbon, its role in climate change, even climate breakdown, talking about the drivers that are leading institutions, investors, companies and individuals to tackle the problem, but also the regulatory environment and the markets for carbon itself. Why don't we have a global price for carbon? What is the opportunity in carbon trading? And what are the real challenges around how offsets work? And are they really solving the problem? We're joined by John Goldberg. John is the CEO and founder of Carbon Direct, an advisory firm offering carbon mitigation and reduction strategies to corporations, also an investment firm focused on growth equity in carbon abatement technologies. John, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. There's lots to talk about on this subject. Before we sort of dig into the various um, technologies around carbon capture, abatement and market solutions, I think it's worthwhile spending a few minutes on why carbon is such an issue and its relationship to climate change and even actually climate breakdown, which is now the more common term about with those people who are looking at this subject, you know, and, and give us some definitions around sources of carbon itself and some of the, I guess, the, the state of the market at the moment? Sure. Um, I, I guess to set the stage a, a little bit, um, I think as everyone, certainly your audience is aware, um, we have a, a daunting challenge, um, which can somewhat be framed as a, a, a math problem, an arithmetic problem, albeit a very challenging one. Um, there's two real challenges with um, the carbon problem and the carbon is one of but probably the most important of the GHG gases that contribute to to climate change and the twofold challenge is one we have emitted a lot of co2 in the industrial era and two we continue to do so on an annual basis um, contextualizing those uh, in uh, numbers uh, since the industrial age we've emitted roughly 1.6 trillion tons of CO2, um, or CO2E, I should say, that remains in the atmosphere today. Um, In addition, we continue to emit about 40 billion tons per annum. And when it comes to the carbon problem and the climate problem, and this is one thing that I think is underappreciated by most audiences, it is both the stock and the flow that matter. Uh, Carbon has a lifetime in the atmosphere that's essentially indefinite. If you release a ton of CO2 into the atmosphere, it stays there. So the challenge of um, handling this from a climate change perspective is one of addressing both the legacy emissions that we've already emitted, as well as racing as closely as possible to uh, net zero. Uh, And by net zero, an economy that removes as much CO2 as it emits on an annual basis. Um, The good news is, I guess we know that framing, the bad news is we're nowhere close on either Uh, the abatement strategy to get us towards net zero or on the management of the legacy CO2 that's in the atmosphere. To amplify that point, carbon that gets released ends up becoming terrestrial carbon. It's circling in the carbon carbon cycle. The problem is that we are continuing to unlock carbon from fossil fossil carbon, which adds just to the overall load in in the atmosphere. And as I understand it, you know, I think we're at 412 parts per million or whatever it might be there's not too much capacity left in the atmosphere before people really start being very concerned, not about climate change, but that 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 point of climate breakdown. That's correct. So a couple important distinctions, as you alluded to, there is a natural flux between 
biological sources and sinks of CO2. That's not really what we're talking about here. What we're talking about is the extraction of fossil-based energy from the Earth's um, ground, um, which when combusted, releases that CO2 back into the atmosphere. Um, to really deal with this issue, we're going to have to return a significant amount of that CO2 from where it came, uh, which is in the geosphere. And that will be a key point of our discussion, I'm sure, when we talk about carbon capture and storage. We're going to need to do that um, as we move forward. Um, you know, these are sort of non-binary issues. I, I think that the, the framing around carbon budget is useful. I, I sort of like the visual of the bathtub, the leaky bathtub, where the CO2, that's the stock of CO2, is the water that is in the bath, and it's already creating quite an issue. The flow is the, the drip drip from the sink. Uh, eventually, it starts leaking over, and that's problematic. It, it, it's not that uh, if this isn't totally addressed by 2050, there's some sort of binary specific event that happens. It's that these problems compound, they get worse and worse over time, they're happening now. And we know with certainty that they're going to get worse because we've already baked in the stock of CO2 into the atmosphere. So we know it's getting worse. Uh, the challenge is how quickly can we uh, change behavior, innovate, lower the CO2 that's in the atmosphere already, and abate um, what we're emitting on an annual basis. That gives us a good picture of where we are right now. And, you know, it's, um, there is optimism, um, but there's also a lot of bleakness in that picture as well. Where are we at at the moment when it comes to all of the various stakeholders in this, but particularly with your lens from Carbon Direct on, on corporations and the technology piece? But what, where are we at at the moment with regards to the conversation about carbon, the drivers that are causing certain organizations to start to act? And I think about, you know, the companies themselves and how they interact with their value chains, but also the investment community, because, that's, you know, this is a topic of, of increased um, focus and for both investors and for uh, the companies themselves. Yeah, I mean, so importantly, everyone is a stakeholder in this, um, whether you, you want to be or, or, or not, um, because, you know, carbon in the atmosphere is a global problem in that, you know, a ton released by a company or a ton released by a country, whether that country is in, in the East or in the West, uh, matters equivalently um, for the carbon math. A, a ton is a ton. It goes into the atmosphere. It, it has challenges for everybody involved. So we're all stakeholders. And that, that, is, that is literally true in this situation. It's what makes it somewhat unique. Um, when it comes to like, the investment in corporate community, I mean, I think that there's been some significant strides that have been made over the last decade, probably more so in Europe than in the States, um, although that is presumably changing now. Um, but I would say we're, we're not very far along. I, I think that there's been a recognition that there's a huge issue. There's been significant developments that have been terrific in some verticals of the problem, specifically in electrons. So electricity like solar and offshore wind have made tremendous progress. We've certainly seen some innovation that's um, uh, incredibly promising in electric vehicles and would expect that that uh, continues and and. Uh, continues in a parabolic way, frankly, uh, over the immediate term. Uh, we have not done a lot of work in the majority of emissions. So 35% of emissions come from making stuff. Uh, so making steel, making cement. Uh, we are at essentially zero uh, in terms of uh, where that is today. We're investing in some companies that can help. Uh, but right now it's quite at a, a low scale. And then again, I'll, I'll go back to the initial framing of the challenge of the stock versus flow issue. Um, even though we're having some terrific innovations to date, and um, COVID, I think, actually proved this out, you know, we're slowing the rate of growth 
of emissions. We're slowing the rate of growth of things like oil demand, but we're not doing any damage in an absolute sense. And that simply must change. Is there, are you seeing that sense of urgency that certainly the scientific community feels within organizations, within from investors? Or is this, you know, I guess, how, how um, sharp is this topic, you know, in the conversations you're having with your, your clients? Yeah, I mean, listen, it, it, it depends. Um, it, it really is different by different groups. We're seeing some great things with uh, some of our clients. You know, we've been really, uh, you know, proud to have worked with um, the team at Microsoft for the last year and about two weeks ago uh, put out a carbon removal RFP that um, we had helped them put together over the last year, taking CO2 from the atmosphere to account for their residual emissions using trees, soils, direct air capture, some hybrid technologies, and it is sort of core to the ethos of the company, and and we're quite excited by the progress there, as well as a number of other um, clients that we're working with. We're also seeing some interesting innovation um, from some of our clients who are focused on supply chain changes. That could be transitioning from petroleum-based fuel to sustainable aviation fuel um, and other areas. So there's definitely progress um, I think most of what's happened, though, in aggregate is more on the measurement and reporting side, um, which is great, but is not a solution to anything. So there's been a lot of focus on, do you, um, do you release your scope one, scope two, scope three emissions? And that data is useful and certainly can help investors. It is different from doing anything uh, about that CO2. And, and we're really only starting to get on the precipice of that action-oriented um, work today. We're going to move on in a little bit to the, I guess, the regulatory framework, some of the, those drivers around this, and come on to, I guess, the, the price of carbon and, and that very big topic and a lot of complexity there. Before we get there, can you just help us understand the categories here when it comes to actually reducing carbon, the abatement, capture, and then this topic of offsets <laughs> that we'll come on to. But can you just give us a little bit, you know, where are we at in kind of those three, even if that's the correct categorization, those three sort of pillars of tackling carbon? Yeah, so um, I, I think it's useful to, to think of them in different buckets of, of uses. Um, the, I, I referenced it before, but the biggest source of CO2 emissions is something people don't talk about very much. And it's, it, it, it is a broad category of making things, um, be it steel or cement. Uh, the built world, if you will, that's about 35% of global emissions. Obviously, it varies by country. It's also one where we are certainly growing over time. Um, the um, uh, build out uh, in emerging markets is accelerating, not decelerating. That is using more stuff. It's using more steel. It's using more cement. Um, and that that is happening. So as a, a fund, one of our key investment areas is in finding things like lower or even carbon negative cement. Uh, that's one of the big focuses that we have because it's such a big uh, source of emissions. The other key areas um, that people do tend to focus on are things like electricity, which again, depending on the region, is roughly 25% of uh, overall emissions. There's certainly been some great innovation in electricity, um, depending on where you're located, uh, in things like wind and in solar on displacing uh, traditional fossil-based energy. I would hark back that what that has meant is that we are lowering the rate of growth of GHG emissions as opposed to dealing with the stock or even lowering the absolute level. Uh, I do think that's an important distinction that we need to, to make, although there's a lot of progress to be to be proud of there. 
And then about 15% of emissions are on transport, um, cars. So like your personal transport, your your truck or your Tesla is only a small sliver of transport. It's, it's mostly trucks and um, moving things around. And again, progress in that area. Um, but even within the electric vehicle personal car segment, um, things are moving and moving very quickly. But because cars and trucks are long-lived capital assets, they're shorter-lived than things like a cement plant, but they do last a bit. Even as we're increasing that rate of growth of new vehicles sold on EVs versus non-EVs, we're going to have traditional cars in the makeup for a long period of time. Uh, so it's it's even in that area is not moving quickly enough, although there's more progress there than in other areas. Um, other buckets of CO2 sources, um, things like land use changes, agriculture, um, and heat, uh, like heating buildings is another significant source of CO2 emissions that we don't have great uh, answers for. I've got a couple of points there. One is, so going back to how, so you, how do you make um, cement carbon negative? Yeah, so currently it's, it's currently we aren't. Um, the way that you can make cement negative, and, and you know, we are an investor in a company and have an interest in a company called Carbon Pure. Um, the way that that process can potentially be uh, carbon negative is there's a curing process where you can actually cure the CO2 into the production of concrete. And if you source that CO2 from atmospheric CO2, so you can actually capture carbon from the atmosphere through direct air capture, or you can take biogenetic sources of CO2, use CCS during the combustion of that um, biomass, capture that CO2, which would have been released into the atmosphere and therefore it's negative, and actually put it into the final product. And that final product lives for a long period of time. Uh, so the durability there is about 100 years or more, which is really uh, important. Uh, to be clear, that's not happening now. Uh, prospectively, it can. But where Carbon Cure, and there's a few other companies that we work with that do a similar thing, uh, are important today, is um, the recycling of CO2 and also lowering the amount of clinker that goes into the actual concrete production um, to lower that um, 30 percent bucket of emissions that we have from industrial use getting that getting that lower over time and um, there have been some good developments there but still pretty small uh, relative to the size of the industry yeah and i know something you do as well is that carbon life cycle reporting because when i you know one of the the pushbacks we hear about teslas for example is great when they move around they're not using they're not producing carbon but when you look at everything that goes into making one from the the steel or whatever it might be through to the the batteries and so on actually what is their carbon footprint then in comparison to just another automobile you know um can you talk a little bit about that and i, I know that's a incredible that's probably half the challenge here is actually being able to accurately account for carbon footprints of activities and and objects there's a lot there i, I think first on electric vehicles so one um evs particularly Tesla, are indisputably better uh, than uh, the alternative from a fossil perspective. There's been some really shoddy research suggesting the opposite. That's not true. So a, a Tesla has a significantly better life cycle analysis than um, a traditional uh, car. It comes at a cost. So we have a levelized cost of carbon abatement calculation you can do it when looking at an electric vehicle. And that cost can come from either consumers purchasing at a higher price to avoid CO2 and or the treasury. Um, there's significant subsidies that go into electric vehicles. 
Um, those policies may be really good policies, but it is important to look at them when looking at the purchase price of an EV. Um, but Tesla, Tesla and other EVs um, are significantly better than uh, the petroleum alternative. Uh, but the scale of the avoidance of EVs is pretty minimal. Um, you know, you can find this on the Tesla webpage. They've avoided something like 3.5 million tons uh, in total of CO2 in the lifetime of the company. I, I mean, just to give you some perspective, like one cement plant emits, one large scale Lafarge cement plant emits about 2 million tons a year of CO2. So the scale is, um, it, it is really quite striking when it comes to the build the built universe. When we talk about the life cycle analysis, it's actually a little bit less on like the, you know, EV versus other comparison, in which case EVs uh, tend to do quite well. Um, it's more in uh, folks will come to us with a project that they claim to have carbon negativity, and they're looking to sell that carbon negative uh, credit to one of our customers. It's very important that when you look at those things, you look at the full life cycle carbon analysis. So a good example would be um, direct air capture. We're, we're fans of direct air capture from a climate perspective. But if you're going to look at the tons of CO2 that you're capturing from a DAC plant, you have to include the energy uh, that you use to power it. So for example, if you're using gas to power a direct air capture plant, you have to account for the fact that you're emitting CO2 and methane on a CO2e um, uh, basis. And you have to account for those things in a full LCA. That's that's really what we focus on. And that moves us on to, okay, so our community is you know is in the commodities world and there's lots going around about you know prices of carbon and and carbon trading and the opportunity there the from a regulatory standpoint i guess there's typically kind of three options governments have and that's outlaw and fine or you know make criminal you've got direct tax and then you've got a cap and trade schemes or offsetting or what you know it's all the same roughly roughly speaking and we've had a cap and trades it seems to be the way most people would go. You can argue that's because it's the least disruptive to the the status quo. Um, you know, they've been around for a decade or more. They suffered from low prices. We're starting to hear a bit of a different conversation. But can you can you just help us just sketch for us quickly, kind of the regulatory mosaic that's out there as it comes to carbon, where roughly we're at in in that picture. Yeah, uh, hugely important. Um, there's all sorts of carrots and sticks that uh, governments can do uh, to help uh, this transition or to not <laughs> assist with it. Um, you know, some of it is on the trading mechanisms that you sort of alluded to. We have a number in the U.S. Uh, in California, there's uh, a cap and trade system that offsets can sell into to hit your your obligations. We have a program that's similar in the Northeast. We also have quite a number of state initiatives, things like the low carbon fuel standard in California, which is being mimicked among a number of different states that relates to the carbon intensity of fuels in the state and also allows things like direct air capture to sell into those programs uh, as a credit. So as a way of incentivizing carbon removal in addition to lower carbon intensity of fuels. Uh, this is being mimicked kind of all over the world in different forms. Canada has a carbon tax that's going $230. Norway has a carbon tax coming in line. And then obviously in Europe is the biggest carbon market of them all with the EU ETS and soon to be, we think, uh, the UK uh, ETS as well. Um, in addition, and just to uh, add to a complicated matrix, um, there's all sorts of other policies that governments are doing and can do more of to support both carbon removal and carbon management. 
uh, things like procurement standards. You know, I mentioned the cement industry and steel as being a big area. We're starting to see some small scale like green procurement from the Department of Defense. We're starting to see some things from the, the Air Force looking at sustainable aviation fuel, things of that nature. And all of these are helpful in being the first buyer to decrease what you know Bill Gates would call the green premium to get these lower carbon or zero carbon alternatives to a cheaper point. Uh, so through incentive structures and then penalties for emitting a ton of carbon, there is a lot going on and a lot more that governments can do. Uh, it is very complicated by jurisdiction, um, but those are a sampling of what's going on. So there's lots of challenges around cap and trade, not least that it's in some ways is, is accused of allowing that status quo, you know, emitters of fossil fuels to buy offsets. And there's questions around whether those offsets typically in the global south are actually um, meeting the standards that they say they are. There's lots of incentives to inflate the amount of carbon capture those offsets actually create. Can you just help us understand the cap and trade system and kind of where where it's it's met problems and and kind of where you see that whole sector going? Yeah, I mean, you described the challenges pretty well. Um, you know, the, the challenge with cap and trade when you're introducing things that can fill into a compliance mechanism is that people are paying for the right to emit a ton of CO2. And if they're paying less than a ton of CO2 benefit in that exchange, it's a terrible, um, it, it's a terrible deal for climate. And we've seen this uh, in essentially all cap and trade programs, particularly with offsets where the offsets had questionable durability in carbon accounting terms, and people were purchasing fundamentally a right to release a ton of fossil-based CO2 that would last in the atmosphere forever. Um, for a ton of biological CO2 that was very difficult to measure and definitely will not uh, remove carbon forever. Um, this is very, very uh, challenging. It's why cap and trade has been you know, difficult. It's not impossible, but extremely difficult to uh, implement in practice. Mm. And I just want to zoom in on that because I think that's the, the bit that in my reading for this really struck me is you've got multiple issues, not least you've got obviously this is there's this neoclassical sort of economic nirvana like idea that you know if we can give it a price um it will will solve for it um the issue with cap and trade is you've got this crucial non-equivalency between tons of carbon it matters where they're from because from fossil fuel sources that's very different to planting some trees you've also got this issue of actually figuring out really complex issues about how much carbon has really been captured, albeit temporarily, and in a world of increasing fos you know, forest fires and stuff, you know, there's issues there. There's also actually quite a bit of ES, well, of the E, the, the S and G challenges around this as well, about you're doing an offset in marginal land or, or you know, in, in the global south, where actually, are, how is that money then being distributed? Is it going to local landowners that's further disrupting um, society, societies, you know, and, and so forth? So there's a real, a lot of trouble, uh, or a lot of challenges there, as, as you say. That's all right. Um, you know, I think there's a number of different problems. One, we see all the time, uh, you know, programs, it is possible to do something like this, but it's very challenging. A lot of these programs rely on counterfactuals. Uh, so basically they said, um, you know, we would be uh, tearing this forest down, but for the existence of this financing mechanisms. You know, there are likely times where that's true um, and it might represent a ton of CO2 benefit. 
oftentimes it's not. Uh, oftentimes the, the land had been sustainably managed for a long period of time, hadn't been touched, um, or uh, there are times where that it does in fact go, the, the credit is issued, and then the farming practices move next door. So the net overall benefit of CO2 is, is zero. So it's very, very difficult to implement these strategies. It's not impossible, but it's extremely difficult. And then obviously the biggest challenge, and there, there is some work around this, um, you know, Miles Allen at Oxford and a number of others have done a lot of work on understanding and improving calculations of like warming equivalent emissions for short-lived stuff. So thinking through, hey, I'm paying for a ton of CO2 in a tree that's going to last X number of years, comparing that to a fossil-based emissions and getting a more equivalent standard. But really what we need is if you're going to implement this through policy, you emit a ton of CO2. Um, there's a an, an actual price on that. If you're going to uh, remove a ton of CO2, you need to prove durable storage and you get a credit for that. And that sort of tax and credit system, um, I think, can work well. Um, we're, we're nowhere particularly close to implementing that on a global scale, uh, but it is something that we think could work. Okay, so so yeah, so a price for a ton produced and a price for a ton that you can prove has been sequestered for a level of of permanence, you know, and it's not just planting trees which have a, you know, a whole lot of other issues. Um, so let's let's hold that for for a second. There's also a lot of talk at the moment about if we could have one global price for carbon that would essentially solve everything because suddenly you'd have all this investment. Um, people could invest in building, you know, carbon capture at the tailpipe or whatever it might be. And you'd have you, the market would then act and solve carbon. That's that itself. I mean, it sounds fantastic, but that really is a, a, a really challenging and complex thing to pull off. Can you just talk to that idea of a, a global carbon price for a minute? Yeah, I mean, so I'm not a, a, a social scientist or a political economy expert. Um, the challenges of getting a, a carbon tax in place are very real. I mean, even in places like Washington State, uh, with a great governor who's been very supportive of environmental policies, it was extremely difficult. And, and in fact, it didn't happen to get a, a carbon tax in place. In France, we saw significant objections as well. So there's a lot of political work that needs to go into that. Uh, there's a lot of jobs that will be displaced um, and or changed, um, which needs handling. So um, these are very, very complicated questions. I think a global carbon tax would certainly not be some sort of panacea. You'd also have to address historical emissions because while the Chinese are emitting more CO2 today, the legacy emissions in the U.S. are much more dramatic. So is it fair uh, you know, to do an equivalent $50 a ton carbon tax for emerging economies as well as developed economies. I think people would argue strongly against that. Um, you'd be penalizing the less developed world. And I, I don't think that would that would work. Um, but with all those caveats in, in, in place, um, yes, I mean, appropriately pricing CO2 emissions, whether it's against the social cost of carbon, which the Biden administration is doing more work on, on calculating and getting into policies, or I think actually the simplest way of pricing it would be price it against the price of removing it. Um, right now, that's sort of at a direct air capture upper bound where you feel like there's good permanent storage. But yeah, that would incentivize massive changes. Um, and I do think would be an incredibly effective um, policy metric. I, I just one quick thing is that we do have carbon taxes by other names, right? So in the US, 45Q is a federal law. It is a real thing. That law pays you $50 a ton to take CO2 from the point of emissions, like a cement plant, capture that CO2 and store it under the ground. The government pays you $50 a ton to do that. 
that is a $50 price for carbon. It's effective. We're getting projects built. It works. The CO2 is stored. So, you know, there's some progress on these things, but no, we haven't seen that like unified global uh, equivalent price uh, that's been quite challenging. I think that sets us up really nicely to you know understand some of the challenges around this. Focusing on our community, which I say largely is you know businesses themselves and the commodity trading aspect to, to carbon, which there is a, a significant amount of interest in. Um, can we just first of all, you know, you're talking to businesses. What can businesses do right now? How should they think of you know? Should they be already pricing a notion you know that fifty bucks? on the carbon they produce, getting future-proof about how they deal with that, thinking about how they're going to um, abate that carbon. What, what sort of the, you know, what should the C-suite of any commodity extraction business be thinking right now? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I mean, I think one, and I think that this is resonating, you know, this isn't going anywhere. Uh, you know, people aren't going to say, we're very focused on carbon and then shift attention. So I think people do need to realize that this is a a systematic and absolutely seismic shift in how business operations need to be done over time. Um, so looking at, you know, step one, ways to lower the carbon intensity of existing, whether it's a, you know, producing asset, could be in mining, could be in oil. There are ways to lower the carbon intensity of your actual production process. I think that's sort of the easiest start. Um, it happens that a number of folks that are in the oil extraction or in the mining business also have a, like a really interesting business angle, and we're working with a few of these companies now in the storage of CO2. So, um, you know, oil companies like Occidental are really good at managing CO2 storage. Uh, that is an interesting business model as the world starts to price carbon more appropriately. That's a very important business to have, and, and Oxy's um, quite ahead of that. On the mining industry, we work with some miners that are working through ways that tail minings from their actual production can be used to increase CO2 storage. Uh, from their production. It can lower their overall CO2 intensity and actually work as a, a carbon storage mechanism. So I think looking at both the ways that your supply chain can be involved in this carbon um, transition, as well as, yes, the cost of emitting a ton of CO2 is going up over time. Um, I, I don't think that's been totally realized yet. I think we've seen much more of the you know, BP investing in wind assets and things like that. And that's that's great. You're sort of you can change the numerator or the, change the denominator on your, your carbon intensity. I think that we've seen less adaption of, hey, I'm still going to be selling oil in 20 years. I need to account for both my cost of production and a $50 a ton carbon cost. I, I think that's been less understood in the market uh, to date and um, has not been priced. Because it would seem at the board level, having companies report on that and actually put that in, you know, account for it, even if it's not a realized cost, would be a pretty good way of, I think, reflecting in some form or fashion, you're going to face that cost down the line, whether it's as a, a punitive fine, you know, legal action, or as, you know, um, reparations of some sort, I, I would imagine, potentially. Yeah, I mean, the challenge with that is why you have the large energy companies that emit 500 million tons per year of scope one, scope two, scope three emissions. And I think that the minimum price that will get for removing a ton of CO2 is about $50 a ton. Uh, 50 times 500 million is not something that those balance sheets can stand. Um, yeah. So uh, I don't, yeah, I, I, I would agree it's not been fully incorporated. Um, there's definitely progress, like there's, there's real progress, there's real reporting progress. 
you know, ExxonMobil is taking on some more folks at the board level who do take this seriously. They're working on CO2 storage. But are we adequately saying that for every ton, again, whether it's scope one, scope two, or scope three, um, that a, a company is emitting or using um, is going to be charged appropriately relative to the price of carbon uh, removal? Uh, no, that's that's definitely not happened. You know, I guess from a business's standpoint, they've got to think about all of their stakeholders and that there's definitely positive momentum behind understanding your footprint and the the upsides of of actually trying to tackle these issues from a um from a you know investor standpoint etc we cover that in, in elsewhere and you know attracting talent frankly you know people increasingly don't want to work for an organization that you know they don't feel comfortable describing to their children what does it mean we feel a lot of calls there's a lot of interest in carbon trading in some of it in getting in the market now, getting some familiarity with it in anticipation of this being a significant new um, commodity in in, um, in in the trading houses, you know, wheelhouse. Um, what, what is the state of carbon trading and where do you see it going? And, and kind of, you, you know, I don't think you'd mind me saying that you're a, you're, you're a, a trader uh, by background. Kind of, can you just talk about that landscape and kind of some thoughts on on where we are right now and, and where you see that heading? Yeah, um, so there's a ton going on. Um, I might, again, separate like regulatory markets, which do have a lot of similarity to other like markets that I've traded in, in my career where, you know, there's a supply and demand, it's a regulated system, a ton has delivery mechanisms that are consistent and um, have consistent legal standards associated with them, something like the EU ETS at 40 euros a ton or wherever the price is today. I think that looks and feels a lot like a commodity. Um, the big difference, right, is where, you know, you do have OPEC in the oil market that can sort of randomly add supply. Um, you know, governments, uh, if the price runs up too quickly or decreases too quickly, um, particularly if it's driven or at least it's viewed that it's being driven, even if it's not, uh, by speculators, I think that you could see some substantial changes in, in the rules. I think that's a little bit different from some other uh, commodities that, that we deal with. Um, the voluntary market, though, is really different. And, um, you know, we've spent a lot of time with the Carney Task Force and a bunch of other task forces trying to scale the carbon market. Um, you know, our, our clients have a 700 million ton a year carbon footprint, which is massive. Um, but when we look at, like, what's going on in some of the markets, there's this race to just trade something. So to trade carbons, to trade Garcia credits, to trade X, Y, and Z, these are super heterogeneous carbon projects that people are trying to trade in a standardized way. And from a climate perspective, I find that very worrying um, because they provide different carbon benefits over different life cycles that require constant monitoring to ensure that you're getting the continued carbon benefit. And that's very different from, say, trading WTI or Brent or copper or whatever the case may be. So. Um, there are some similarities to commodity trading, particularly the regulatory um, side. I would encourage people not to overstate those similarities, um, it, it rushing into some type of voluntary uh, marketplace. That's really interesting. Does it make sense? So, to just going back to that regulatory place, which is where the, the current sort of, yeah, as you say, the established crop of traders sit, and there are actually very few of them because obviously it's been a really challenging market for the last decade. And part of that is to do with the fact that ultimately allocations are political you know, um, driven by policy. And there are all of those reasons in the world for an economy to keep carbon prices low or allocations high 
to not be industry disruptive, but that's you know that's the same as as you mentioned OPEC. Um, is there any benefit to organisations starting to trade in the regulatory markets to I guess support their own corporate goals, but also build familiarity with what might be a really crucial business enterprise, whether it's meeting your own standards and goals or external standards and goals, or from a trading house's perspective, offering liquidity to the space. Is there any benefit in acting in the regulatory space so that you build a familiarity as that regulatory space, I imagine, kind of grows as more governments start to build more frameworks? I mean, certainly if you're an obligated party, um, it, it both makes sense and you must um, participate in some of these uh, things. If you have you know, production assets and things or you own an industrial emitter, um, then certainly it, it makes sense to, to be involved in it. Um, uh, you know, in terms of like providing liquidity, I, I don't totally um, know how that would work. It, 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 it strikes me that, you know, you could speculate that the price is going up. You could buy the carbon credits and then resell them to someone. I, it, it's not clear that you're actually the one providing the liquidity there that that's coming from the, the bank that's providing the, the regulatory bank that's providing those overall credits. I'm not totally sure I see like the value. Um, but in terms of familiarizing so themselves with the markets, um, sure, uh, that, that makes some sense. Uh, a number of hedge funds, including, you know, former friends and, and colleagues of mine on the commodity hedge fund side have made very uh, vocal uh, bullish calls on, on carbon trading allowances. I don't disagree as a trade. I think that's probably right. Um, I'd be a little concerned that if the prices move up too quickly, spurred not by industrial buying, but by speculative buying, that um, the rules of the game will change and could change quite quickly. Um, so that would be somewhat of a, a concern. I, I think the broader point, though, is every business in the world going forward is going to have to incorporate thinking about climate and carbon into their business lines, period. And then moving on to that voluntary piece, if I understand correctly, this is essentially saying organizations want to get involved in projects that can meaningfully offset the carbon they do produce you know okay there's issues around that equivalency of fossil etc but or, or you know reducing carbon um you're just saying be a little bit careful about thinking you can originate one of these projects we put a stamp on it about what actually it does and then sell that in the secondary market basically that's correct um there, there are a hodgepodge of various ratings agencies that do different things today but the veracity of claims on carbon benefits you know, some of the agencies do a good job, some of them do a bad job. We described in the work that we've done with, with Microsoft and others that we, if you want to feel comfortable that you're actually giving a ton of carbon benefit, you need to do both protocol and project level analysis of a particular offset credit. Uh, if you're not doing that, um, the chances that you're, you're utilizing a real ton of carbon benefits are, are pretty nebulous. Yeah, which is there's a worrisome aspect to that right that we that you have organizations buying these you know projects in inverted commas thinking they're doing good talking to their 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 stakeholders that it's doing good but actually when you un, unpick them these things can you know maybe they're not doing any harm but some of them might actually be doing harm yeah i i think that's right um they could be doing harm or again just from this going back to the cap and trade right so if i am buying the right to emit one ton of CO2 that will last in the atmosphere forever, and I'm compensating that with 0.25 tons of carbon benefit, uh, again, bad deal for, for climate. Yeah, yeah. Um, I just want to move on to Carbon Direct itself. Kind of um, what prompted you to, to go from a, being an oil trader to, to setting up Carbon Direct? And 
you know, I guess how is there, a, are you seeing a, a real groundswell of interest in these types of services as a result of, I guess, the last year and, and COVID and, and kind of, I guess, the immediacy we're all feeling about climate change? Yeah. So, so, I mean, I guess just some, some history, you know, I, I traded commodities for a long time. I ran a fund for about eight years doing it. I, I enjoy it and, and think it's a, a fascinating market. Um, I mean, my interest in the carbon world really stemmed from some, you know, nonprofit work that I've been doing while I've been running my previous hedge fund um, in uh, at Columbia. There's an energy policy center that I've I've been on since it started, and I helped fund uh, something called the Carbon Management Initiative at Columbia University, and it just got me hooked on the idea of scientifically robust ways to either uh, remove and store CO2 or to turn CO2 from a liability to an asset, um, i.e. from from carbon utilization trends, um, both from a climate imperative and then from an economic uh, need uh, and opportunity. When you look at the amount of stuff that's moved in the fossil industry, the amount of capital that's invested in the fossil industry, you know, we're talking $2 trillion per year, 5 billion tons per year in, in energy, and we were doing fewer than $100 million of CCUS, and we need to be moving 10 billion tons per annum of carbon-related stuff. So this is quite a big uh, uh, gap between those two things. So that that really was the impetus to start it. I also thought that there were some lessons from you know my early commodities that would be helpful. You know, namely working with clients and structuring offtake agreements. So we do a lot of long-term contracting with folks who you know they want to buy carbon removal, but they want to buy it for a 10-year period. How do you structure that? At what price? How do you finance it? Things of that nature. Um, so that really drove it. And then, you know, the, the business has, has really grown quite quickly. Um, you know, the, the client base has expanded. Um, we obviously were a little worried at the beginning of COVID that money and attention would decrease from climate-related issues. The, the total opposite has occurred. It's, it's inflected. We've been bombarded with um, client interest in at least thinking through their carbon challenges, as well as investment opportunities in the space. So we're at the very, very early stages of a big scaled challenge, but at least the momentum and trend is is pretty good. Yeah, fascinating. I guess from a final point, from a talent standpoint, all I'm, I guess what I'm hearing from this conversation is, you know, the, this is, you, you've, it's loud and clear. If you're not thinking, if you're a, in the commodity sector and you're not thinking about carbon, you, you probably should do pretty soon. Um, it sounds like the, the the talent needed in the sector, the talent that's going to be consumed in the sector, is not so much perhaps you know traders, but it's around a project origination talent, structuring. You mentioned yourself, financing talent, you know, and then also I guess the the biologists, the the climatologists, the ecologists that can actually vet these projects as well. So this is probably going to be more of a project and origination type market for a while until and if we get potentially that sort of globalized carbon trading um particularly around you know a cost of tar- carbon to produce and a cost of carbon to sequester for the long term yeah i think that you described that well i mean so we on our team you know we have 32 climate scientists that i i work with with have each of whom has a different expertise uh, some have expertise in soil carbon management some in forest some in direct air capture some in mineralization some in bioenergy with carbon capture and it is, you know, each each person has over a decade of experience in that particular scientific vertical. That is extremely important because uh, you need to understand the actual carbon dynamics of the solutions that you're dealing with. But then, yes, I mean, there's going to be significant amounts of, you know, project development that's going to be um, accomplished, uh, just like you described. 
Um, you know, I will say like there's a lot, a lot, a lot of focus on markets. And as a hedge fund guy and a trader, I am a believer in markets and the ability to scale. But like it's, it's actually not the gating challenge right now. I mean, we did $100 million of carbon removal projects in the fourth quarter and we utilize zero exchanges. I mean, we very effectively can do these with bilateral contracts that frankly aren't terribly complicated to put together. Um, and once you do one of these carbon removal credits, a, a buyer meets a seller, you know, the, the credit's retired. So it, it's not like, you know, a Microsoft is purchasing a soil carbon credit at $15 with the need to sell it at 30, right? It, they're, they're purchasing it for the carbon benefit. Um, and that's different from traditional exchanges. So I, I have no doubt that finance is going to play a huge role in this. We're, we're working on some initiatives in that space. Um, it's not really the, the primary challenge right now. Final point, looking looking to the future, do you see this as this is the nascent start of how many of these you know commodities started out? You know, I don't want to use the word commodities because I know it doesn't quite apply here, um, or it oversimplifies by far. But do you think in ten years we'll have a robust open carbon exchange globally? So uh, robust and open might be uh, not. <laughs> I, I think we'll see significantly more uh, trades in carbon. I think that. What's more important is that we see significantly more money that is either taxed and or spent on valid carbon removal and or money that's used to dissuade carbon emissions. That, that to me is more important than the existence or lack thereof of a market mechanism. But do I think that we'll see more carbon trading, regulatory, voluntary? Yeah, definitely. Yes. Um, I, I just don't think that's like the number one thing when we don't have great protocols for a lot of the different verticals of carbon management. Rushing into an exchange doesn't seem like a logical first step to me, um, but over the next 5, 10, 15 years, yeah, no, we're, we're definitely going to have a lot a lot more of it. Fantastic. Well, it's been a, a, a fascinating discussion. Um, we'll put a link to Carbon Direct in the, in the show notes for people. I'm sure you're, you're, you're easy to find. Really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider and Human Capital, a search firm dedicated to the commodities sector, go to www.hcinsider.global, where you'll find more original content on the commodities sector and more details on our offering as a search firm and our locations around the world. Thanks again for listening.